Hello, everybody, and welcome to Import This, a podcast for humans. This is episode 11, and today we are joined with uh, Jubar, also known as Joshua Ginsburg, I believe is how you pronounce it, right? Correct. Also known as Jag. <laughs> Jag. The, the Jag. Yeah. Uh, J- uh, Josh is um, a well-known member of the Django community, uh, and he is the chief architect of the Ansible Project, which is a very prolific um, Python-specific uh, um, project for orchestrating everything. Your or- <laughs> all of it. Orchestrating <laughs> orchestrations. <laughs> um, and yeah, so that's how people probably know you. If they know you, you've done some Django talks, uh, Django Con talks, and uh, I know you from conferences. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ansible, everyone knows Ansible. I think it's kind of replaced. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm kind of removed from this world, but in my mind, um, for a long time, there was Chef, and there was a competitor to Chef. I can't remember what it was called. So, um, so prior to Chef, uh, uh, probably the large, uh, the biggest automation solution was Puppet, and then Puppet. yeah, there was Chef and Puppet, and then Salt kind of was the cool Python version of that, and then Ansible came around, and now everyone, I think, the best practice is to use Ansible. I, I would say that the the, the, the pickup on Ansible has is, is definitely sort of eclipsed other automation products. Including Chef and Puppet? Including Chef and Puppet. Um, I believe the last numbers were worthy uh, in the top 10 most active projects on GitHub. Um, and at least by various metrics, you know, uh, uh, Google search trends, GitHub stars, things of that nature, uh, we're about four times larger than uh, any of the other open source competitors. Now, I know that Ansible is a Red Hat product, mm-hmm. project and product. Uh, is it um, can you orchestrate an Ubuntu, uh, you know, sure uh, or layer with it? Sure. So uh, Ansible started as its own startup. Uh, it was acquired by Red Hat in uh, fall of uh, let's see, fall of twenty fifteen, um, and so Red Hat has always uh, Ansible has always been. Uh, the Switzerland of automation. Uh, we 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 make <laughs> we, we make friends with everybody. You can you can orchestrate Windows, Unix, Mac, uh, all flavors of Linux, uh, cloud, network hardware. Um, you can even orchestrate uh, Chef and Puppet using Ansible. Um, there there are definitely uh, some use cases I've seen where folks use Ansible to bootstrap uh, Puppet or Chef uh, and use those uh, tools for. Uh, um, uh, continuous compliance uh, type uses. And of course the exciting thing that everyone's talking about now is containers and you guys have a solution to uh, kind of a response to Docker, right? Like you can use Ansible to maintain a Docker cluster, right? Well, y- you you can. So Ansible has, um, has modules out of the box for uh, working with uh, Docker, working with uh, Kubernetes, Kubernetes uh, Elastic Container Service, uh, and and the number of those modules is is growing, and uh, we're we're definitely taking sort of the uh, the same Switzerland approach to uh, to containers. We we don't really care what container technology what you want to use. We want to be the easiest and best way to uh, to get there. However, you have your own container that is supposed to be um, a little bit more approachable, I assume. Not, not. It's not our own container engine. So, I mean, you know, one of the one of the hard parts about the, the whole containerized ecosystem, and and you know, it always seems like uh, that 
you know, big, bright containerized revolution is right around the corner, but it's <laughs> been that way for a couple of years now. And, and the, the hard part is that, um, some, you know, a container is this, uh, it's something more than a process, but it's something less than a VM. And um, so we have yeah. all these great tools for managing processes and we have all these great tools for managing VMs, but none of them really apply to containers. And so every single tool and best practice and uh, uh, everything we've learned in the last 30, 40 years of IT, throw it out the window because containers <laughs> doesn't even, and, and you know, if you look at a Docker file, like we're back to writing shell scripts again. I mean, that's basically yeah. what a Docker file is, is it's a really bad shell script. That's what I was going to ask. Is that is that what is the key differentiator between doc, uh, Ansible containers and Docker files? Is that is there a better way to describe what your layers look like? Yeah, and and, and so since w what we started Ansible container with uh, just that that frustration of why are we writing shell scripts still? And so uh, Ansible, I like shell scripts personally. Well, I, I, and Heroku build packs are lovely shell scripts, and you write some great yeah, shell scripts. Just that exactly. Uh, you know, reading Docker files with command ampersand ampersand backslash command ampersand ampersand backslash, yeah. like they're just yeah. unreadable and unmaintainable. And it's so you know one of the one of the really nice things about an Ansible playbook is even if you don't know Ansible, you can look at an Ansible playbook and figure out what it does. Um, it's it's uh, it uses YAML, which is you know like Python, uh, white space significant. Um, it's self documenting as in every. Uh, play and every task as a human readable label. Um, it's uh, you know to use your uh, favorite Turner phrase. It's automation for humans. Um, yeah, excellent. But excellent. Uh, um, but so uh, what we started with Ansible Container was can we um, use the you know the existing Ansible content that you know all these people have already written and use it to um, to also build and orchestrate containers. And um, what's come out of it is a very Ansible like solution to uh, container construction and orchestration, um, and that's Ansible containers. So we, we piggyback on Docker, we piggyback on Kubernetes, we piggyback on OpenShift, we will piggyback on you know Mesos, DCOS, uh, Elastic Container Service, Azure Container Service, uh, doesn't matter, but using the same Ansible, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ansible playbooks and Ansible uh, or orchestration specifications, you can build, run, and deploy your containers fully orchestrated in any one of those technologies. So is is there an equivalent to a Docker file in in an Ansible container? Sure. And it's it's an, it's kind of I mean it's very early, so like it, you know, we still even just call it a project. But um, um, the so in, in lieu of a Docker file you use Ansible tasks. Uh, right now, it's an Ansible playbook. In the next release, it's actually just going to be a set of Ansible roles um, to uh, use Ansible commands in order to describe gotcha. what your container is, which is great because it means you can take those same roles that you're using to build containers. Because a role, if you think about it, is basically just a microservice. And you can use that same role to provision VMs, to provision bare metal. Uh, if you have existing roles for provisioning those, you can bring them right over to Ansible Container, and you know you're already in the containerized ecosystem. Um, gotcha. So, uh, uh, so it's gotten a lot of pickup. So, if you had an existing Docker file, would it be easy to translate it into this system? That's a fun part um, that we're building into our our next release, which ought to be in the next month or two. Is we have an importer. So, uh, ah. taking a Docker file, you'll be able to output an Ansible Container project uh, and throw the Docker file away. 
that and that includes inc- importing uh, another Docker and Docker image from Docker Hub, right? So um, the way that a Docker file references uh, what image it's uh, uh, leaping off of is just by a name in the engine, and so yeah. uh, uh, you know we don't really care. You know, since we don't care what engine you're using locally, we don't care how that image gets there. Um, so, so you're just sucking that in and including it in your export. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's, that's fantastic. So you get the whole stack right there, and it's all converted, and then you can go from there. And is, is this in a? Is the output looks like YAML? It's it is YAML, or is there Python mixed in there? So Ansible itself is all Python, um, with the exception of uh, the Windows parts, which are all in PowerShell. But um, uh, Ansible is uh, uh, very modular, so all the parts are uh, removable and replaceable, uh, you know, plug-in kind of system. Uh, what's nice is the parts that actually operate on remote systems themselves don't have to be Python, but they are, all the ones included with Ansible are Python. Um, yeah. So, it, you know, you can write modules to, uh, uh, to, to, you know, configure remote systems in Bash, Java, Ruby. Yeah, what is needed to con- to control a system remotely? Is it just an SSH server, or do you need some kind of a Python client? So, so usually it's SSH, uh, or for Windows it's WinRM. But uh, again, the the connection itself is a pluggable component. So, for example, in Ansible Container, uh, we don't use SSH to build the target containers. We use the Docker engine itself. So, yeah, uh, Docker can be a connection plugin for for Ansible. Um, use the HTTP API for that? Um, so, uh, w- actually, it's uh, just a sub-process out to Docker exec. But, oh, excellent. But, for example, yeah, when I, you, I know on the Mac, they, they, they cheat and they use the uh, HTTP API. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, for talking to cloud systems, we've got to use HTTP. Um, for uh, uh, you know, talking to network hardware, we can use SSH, or we can use, you know, native, uh, you know, like uh, Cisco has its own proprietary communications protocol. So there's... Uh, yeah. So you know all those parts of Ansible are fully pluggable, which has made it really easy to integrate into uh, into all kinds of different ecosystems. Excellent. So what's what do you, what would you see as being the biggest uh, blocker for someone trying out Ansible uh, if they want to deploy their own infrastructure? Like what's what stops people from like what what are there any obvious scotches or anything like that? Well, and. and like, is it is it an obvious not right fit for some people? Um, the biggest difference between Ansible and any of the other products in the same space is really that Ansible is an agentless system, whereas, uh, you know, things like Puppet or Chef are agented. So you've got to install Puppet D or Chef D or at least install a client program on those target systems. Uh, but since Ansible's transport is just SSH, uh, you don't really need anybody's permission to use it. And so what we, we, what we find gotcha. a lot of is like, you know, there'll be somebody working in, you know, the data center is like, ah, God, you know, I'm doing this manual task all the time. It would be great to just use Ansible for this. And they can because they have an SSH key on all their target systems. So in, maybe in some organizations that flexibility is um, a downside, not an upside. Uh, yeah. And so usually we hit this uh, interesting tipping point where, uh, you know, somebody who's running the enterprise that he's like, oh, my God, this thing Ansible is running everything. And I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know who's running what and, you know, where these playbooks are maintained and, all, and so they you know they really want to centralize and control and create that audit trail and, and that's really where the the commercial product ansible tower comes in is, is yeah it. i was just going to ask you about that if, if you, so so ansible is one of those interesting projects where there's a split between 
uh, open source and paid products, uh, and it seems to be very sustainable for Red Hat. Um, uh, and, and I was going to ask you what the, what the split is. I'm aware of Tower, which is a for pro, for profit product that is not open source, correct? Not currently open source, but we okay. we, we have committed to open sourcing it. Though the uh, uh, you know, given that Red Hat's a public company, we can't make speculations about that timeline. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, what does the breakdown look like? What 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 can I pay for if I want to? So uh, under the hood, Ansible Tower is using Ansible, the same free Ansible that you can get off GitHub. Same batteries included. Like there's. Uh, so I could build my own Ansible Tower if I wanted to. Uh, much good may it do you. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, but no, Ansible Tower is uh, a secured uh, web API. Um, to centralize uh, playbook repositories, centralize credentials, centralize inventory, uh, delegate role-based access control to who can do, who, who can run what playbooks against what systems using so what is credentials. It's it, it effectively the AWS console for your infrastructure. That, that would be that would be something similar, and like AWS's uh, uh, architecture, it's a, a web API first product that we have a. Uh, HTML client to and a CLI client to, but you can also gotcha. uh, interact directly with the API. And do you have something like Bodo for it? Sure, it's called Tower CLI. And okay. uh, uh, well, so uh, well, Tower CLI is a Python based CLI client, which you can also import as a wrapper. Um, gotcha. But, uh, but, Py- uh, but Ansible Tower is uh, Django, it's uh, Django REST framework, it's, uh, so it's all Python under the hood, too. That's fantastic. And it's uh, and that's something that you pay for currently. So currently, it is a, a exclusively a paid product. It's not free software. Um, but uh, like I said, uh, from the minute that we got acquired by Red Hat, uh, Red Hat made the commitment that that would not be a uh, a, a permanent state of affairs. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so it sounds like if you were running some serious infrastructure, Tower is something that you're going to want. And so most people are most people that are pretty serious about Ansible using Tower. Uh, I, I think so. If if they aren't, they're seriously looking at it. Um, and I assume it's is it paid? Is it hosted? It's not hosted, so it's on prem. Okay. Um, but uh, it's a, the licenses is a uh, basically per managed node, and so we've got uh, you know folks running tens of thousands of nodes through Tower now. We've got folks who are specking out projects in the hundreds of thousands of nodes being managed by Tower. Uh, it's really kind of cool to have you know that that one centralized um, you know web interface in order to make a deployment that might affect a hundred thousand systems across <laughs> the entire enterprise. I mean that's kind of crazy. Now, coming from a Heroku perspective, let's say I have an app that I that I'm, I'm a developer and I'm de- I wanted to deploy it. What does that workflow look like when in an Ansible in a typical? I know you can configure it in an infinite number of ways, mm-hmm. but let's say this best practice setup here. How would I deploy my application uh, as an de- individual developer within an organization well, so to my Ansible uh, uh, orchestration? Yeah, there's there's all kinds of really cool and complicated orchestration you can do with Ansible. Can playbooks. you set up like a get push receive type of thing like you do with Heroku? Um, it, uh, let me think. Or that that would be like its own service that you'd have to write. Yeah. Um. So I mean, usually the the the, the standard way that I've I've seen it is, um, you know, you let's say you've got you know a hundred web heads behind a load balancer, you know, you'd pull. 10 of your web heads out and apply the changes, you know, deploy the new copy to them and run your tests. 
and keep track of failures and then put them back in the load balancer and pull out the next 10. And if, you know, any more than 5% of your hosts have had failures, uh, you know, they uh, uh, then, you know, operate, do this other thing in order to roll everything back. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you can do some pretty cool and pretty complex uh, uh, orchestrations just with this fairly simple YAML language. Excellent. Excellent. And, uh, but the actual pushing of the code is like, what does that look like? Um, so, I, I mean, you would, uh, uh, you know, push your code to whatever your, your Git repo is, but then you'd do a separate call of, you know, Ansible playbook against this inventory run gotcha. this playbook, which and Ansible has Git modules. So pull the code out of Git, you know, do the build, um, you know, on each host you itself. You basically do like Ansible run the build effectively. Yep. And then it does it. Okay, cool. And then there's, is there like a rollback feature? Uh, not a rollback feature, but since Ansible modules, I mean, by and large are uh, uh, item potent, um, you can okay. basically just run the last copy of the playbook. Um, or gotcha. the same playbook, but with the previous set of variables pumped into it in order to do a rollback. Excellent, excellent. Cool. So so it takes, like, the, the, the git ref is like an argument, effectively? It, it can. I mean, so uh, among the various modules, there, there's, you know, almost a thousand modules at this point for Ansible, but, you know, we have modules for git, modules for mercurial, modules for SVN, CVS, um, you know, uh, we have modules for chat big, ops. Big I mean, you you can you can you know tell it notify Slack when you're done. You can tell it you know uh, to uh, notify IRC or send a text to this person. You can you know you can you can pretty much talk to everything. Um, That's cool. It's really cool. So, um, you work for Red Hat, so you are aware of what the current state of Python two and three is in the Red Hat world, right? Because Ansible, from what I understand, supports currently two four to three six at the same time in the same code base. So, so right now, Ansible doesn't support Python three. Um, oh, I see. I see. Um, so, in the next release of Ansible, where the core engine will be Python 3 supportive, and then we're working on the releases following to bring all the modules up to code. But okay. since um, uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux 5 is about to hit end of life, um, that will be the death knell of our Python 2, Python 2.5 support. Um, okay, which, which, which lets you build a much more expressive, um, lets you utilize the language in a lot more cohesive manner. Right, and so we'll then be supporting... Yeah, nice things like exceptions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so we'll, we'll do 2.6, uh, 2.7, and up to 3.5, uh, you know, for the remainder of the lifetime of Python 2. Um, but, you know, it's... <laughs> you know how I feel about 6. I mean, so basically right now we're not... Uh, we're not making it Python 3 compatible, we're making it written in 6. And so then as soon as Python 2 is end of life, we'll go back through and rewrite it again for you know python 3 like you know it's 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 funny because there's not two dialects of python there's three and so i mean nobody really is writing on python 3 yet everybody's writing in python 2 or 6 and then yeah, 6 being the combination of 2 and 3 at the same time right the the compatibility library you know and so uh you know as as much pain as it is right now getting all of these uh, uh different uh, libraries and apps to to upgrade to being Python three compatible by you know writing their code in Python two with six. Um, you know as soon as Python two becomes fully end of life, we're going to go back through again and nobody's you know get everybody to you know pull six back out of their code and write it in pure Python three. 
So I think that's what everyone's going to have to do uh, in the year 2020, you know, when when 27 is end of life. I think uh, the current state of affairs, I have on the the, the pythonguide.org, mm-hmm. uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to Python, which is available in book form now, by the way, and all the proceeds go to Django Girls. Um, I have this set of statements on the current state of two and three, and I updated it recently, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts. It says that most production applications today use Python 2.7. Python 3 is ready for the deployment productions of applications today. That's an accurate statement. However, two years ago, that might not have been an accurate statement. Uh, Python 2.7 will receive only necessary security updates until 2020, and the brand name Python encapsulates both Python 3 and Python 2, which is an important thing to designate. Yes. Uh, And so I have recommendations, and I say, I will be blunt, use Python 3 for new Python applications. Uh, If you're learning Python for the first time, familiarize yourself with 2.7. Familiarizing yourself with 2.7 will be very useful, but not more useful than learning Python 3. So basically, it's good to to know both because they're both Python right now. Sure. Um, uh, it says learn both. They're both Python. Uh, software that is already built is usually running on two seven. If you are writing an open source library, it's best to write it for both two and three simultaneously. While supporting three for a new only three for a new library uh, is uh, an attractive option for <laughs> for something that you want widely adopted. It is a political statement and will alienate many of your users. Uh, this is not a problem, though. Slowly over the next three years, this will become less and less the case. Um, so I would never start a. I, we we did actually consider with Ansible Container. You know, do we just want to write it in Python three? And the answer was a very resounding no, um, because you know. And that's because you're writing a library. Like I mean, or you're right. It's, even if it's not a library, it's something that's running across multiple systems. You're not writing something like a web app that you're deploying to just like your own infrastructure. Correct. So if if you're writing something which you control the entire runtime and the distribution that you're using is one that supports Python three as its preferred uh, uh, interpreter, then sure, that's great. But if uh, you know you're uh, you know. I, it, it scares me to tel you how many folks are still running rel 4 rel 5 rel 6 out there <laughs> um, and, and so uh, you know rel 7 is on Python 27 and whatever you know rel dot next will be um, will be on Python 3 but you know it, it, it's uh, until the distributions are shipping Python 3 out of the box as their default um, you know anything that you write if you're writing a Python three only is is really just not going to get consumed. You're you're going to be dealing with bug reports day in and day out. What do you mean you don't support Python two? Because um, uh, uh, the distros are are really determinative of of um, what versions people are going to be using. Um, yeah, I get that impression from people who work for those companies a lot. There's also um, uh, what's his name, Nick Coglin, who works for Red Hat as well. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he's very adamant about the fact that um, the distros kind of do determine what people are using quite a bit more than we realize. I think. Yeah, I, I mean, it, I I don't think it's underappreciated. I think it's um, lightly resented because um, uh, uh, it, it you know Python three has been under active development and has been you know uh, blessed for production use for for quite a while now. And, Since three three, yeah, and uh, uh, still, you know, uh, the latest Red Hat Enterprise Linux CentOS is still on Python two, 
uh, you know, Ubuntu trusty is still on Python 2. Um, and, and so un until the users of those uh, distributions, um, you know, kind of fall off the map, uh, we're, we're still going to be uh, uh, writing, having to write code which supports uh, Python 2, which, you know, right now it means that everybody who wrote Python 2-centric applications is writing Python 2 plus 6. Everybody who's starting new applications is writing Python 3 plus 6. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but, but I, it's, it's going to be till 2025 before, you know, we've really gotten 6 out of the mix and we're finally on a pure new Python 3 world ready to do this whole thing again when they decide to start doing Python 4. I'm a little... <laughs> well, yeah, I'm really curious. Do you know if what Red Hat, if they have an official statement on... I mean, because Python.org you know, is EOL in Python 2.7 in 2020. That doesn't mean what Red Hat is. Well, so Red Hat... Because Red Hat often supports things beyond the, their end of life. Right, and so uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux... Uh, 6, as long as it is within life, will be Python 2. Red Hat Enterprise Linux 7, as long as it's within end of life, will be Python 2. And it won't be... You know, off the top of your head what, what the year range oh, is on that? Lord, I, 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 there is a year range for it, and then there's the later year range for it for the people who want to uh, pay for it, then there's the even later year range <laughs> uh, people want to pay for it. Let's see, Rail 6 EOL so is... So just because it's... That's my, my point I'm making to our listeners, is that just because Python is, is you know, the, the official Python organization is end-of-lifing 2.7 doesn't mean that it's actually being end-of-lifed. Um, it is going to be maintained, and security patches will be made available for Red Hat users beyond that date. Yes, so let's see. Uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux 7 will be EOL'd in 2024. <laughs> Red Hat Damn. Enterprise Linux 6 will be EOL'd in 2020. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, so we're, we're going to be dealing with Python 2 for, for quite some time to come. <laughs> and, and I mean, it, it's... I, now, I, I, I'm always under the impression when I hear someone complaining that they can't use like 2.6 or 2.7 or something because they're on an old version of... of of Linux, I'm like, wh well, what the hell? Why can't you just build your own version of Python? It's like four commands away. And uh, it, what what is it about these people that they can't provide their own interpreter? Uh, what, what is stopping them from doing that for their own applications? Sometimes it's laws. Um, you know, if you're in a uh, you know a classified computing environment. I understand that. That makes sense. But that's not the majority of these people. And the majority of these people just want to rely on the system for their Python. And like when you're on a Mac, you're not even supposed to use the system Python because it, it's modified and it's it's linked against a bad SSL, open SSL. And there's like all these reasons not to use it. Mm -hmm. So everyone provides their own Python. Well, so I don't. Like, I don't. <laughs> I, <laughs> well, you I, should. I, I, you I, should. I use the, uh, the, the brew open SSL, but, you know, I, I still use uh, uh, the Python that came. Game standard with. Uh, I, I highly recommend Brew install Python. Okay, okay, I'll check it out. I'll check it out. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, it's uh, I, I it's one of those areas. I think containers will really help a lot um, because once we start running our applications not as processes but as containerized, uh, you know, process trees effectively. Um, you know, you can have a, a a base system that's running on you know RHEL seven, RHEL six. But run a container on it that's running, you know, uh, a rel eight whenever that happens. Um, so uh, I, I think the container, the you know, the fact that containers can uh, bring their uh, entire OS with them will alleviate some of that pressure. But um, 
you know, a, a, a infosec policies and, and uh, a business reliability policies in some companies like, uh, you know, you or I might look at them and say they make no sense, but that's what they are. You know, the, the folks running large banks, large investment houses, you know, uh, they, they don't. Uh, they, they don't have the flexibility to go, oh, yeah, sure, you know, we're just going to cross the board, upgrade everything from rel 6 to rel 7. You know, that's that's uh, the the operational uh, livelihood of the entire company there, and there's, there's just too much at stake. So, uh, so a change of topic, uh, is there anything really cool and interesting that you're uh, interested in right now, either be it in the Python ecosystem or uh, maybe outside of it, like different languages that you're interested in, like Rust or something like that. Anything that you're playing with? Uh, no, you, I mean, just kind of heads I, down in Ansible land. I, I have uh, uh, very uh, clearly locked my fortunes, hitched my wagon up to the the Python bandwagon. But uh, I, I have as well. Yeah, and and you know, I'm I'm totally fine with that. You know, uh, I I think that's uh, an interesting frontier is going to be. Um, uh, uh, you know, things I'm keeping an eye on are, are things like the uh, uh, PyB that's uh, trying to bring Python to uh, uh, mobile application land. Uh, oh, I'm not familiar with this. Uh, PYB. Oh, Beware. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Beware is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And, um, uh, you know, but also on the other end. They uh, give every contributor to the project of physical coin. I know, like I know. Like I know. a challenge I've, coin. I've seen pictures on Twitter. Um, and uh, yeah, I need to get a, a brickable phone so that I can start playing with it. But um, but also, uh, you know, on the other end of things, you know, what what's going on with uh, you know WebAssembly and the idea of uh, bringing every language to be an in-browser uh, oh. scripting language. Um, Web WebAssembly? I haven't heard of this yet. Yeah. So. Um, uh, it, it's it's sort of an effort to create a uh, universal byte. Somebody realized that every major browser is written in C plus plus, and so <laughs> um, so there's really no reason why they couldn't create a sort of universal byte code that uh, JavaScript got compiled to in order to run in a C plus plus program. Um, oh, but if you okay. can compile JavaScript to that, then you could also theoretically compile other languages to that. Um, so there wouldn't necessarily need to be a reason why you'd have to write web scripts in JavaScript. Um, and, you know, if you think about the... Oh, and this is coming into every major browser. Yes. And so, uh, you know, if you think about, you know, the, the biggest reason to use, you know, I think to, the biggest reason to use Node.js on the server is that you can use the same code inside the browser that you're using on the back end. Um, but wouldn't it be great if we could just take that the other direction? And take the code that we're using on the back end and use the same code inside the browser. So something interesting that I found recently that I haven't really looked at at all, to be honest, but I've just heard about it, is called um, Circuits, the Circuits Framework. Have you taken a look at this? No, I haven't. It says Circuits is an event, uh, a lightweight event-driven asynchronous application framework for the Python programming language with a strong component architecture. Features lightweight, high-performance, and scalable HTTP slash WSGI-compliant web server, as well as various I/O networking components. Uh, it says concurrency support, component architecture, asynchronous I/O components, no required external dependencies. It's a full-featured web framework, and it has a coroutine-based synchronization primitives. It says no external dependencies, but it's not using libevent under the hood. I don't know. It might just be using async I/O. Well, that would be interesting. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, when. Uh, I, I hear folks that are, you know, saying you, you, uh, uh, 
Node.js, you know, and, and uh, uh, doing coroutine-based programming like that. You know, you can't do that in Python. You know, I point him toward, you know, Flask and, you know, G-event-driven uh, uh, programming in Python. I that's what that's what I always go for for something like, like that. <laughs> yeah, me too. That's exactly what I do. Yeah. Or I just use Celery and just pretend that it's a, uh, you know, that gives you that gives you like ninety percent of what you need half the time. Yeah, but you know, hey, hey man, you know, come to my world. Stop spinning off Celery tasks and start spinning off containers. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get there eventually. We'll see. Yeah, I like I like Celery. It's nice. Oh man, yeah, it's it's fantastic, and uh, it's it's one of those really cool projects. That's uh, I, I mean like. I, I don't even know how uh, Ash does it. Like, you know, just rewrites the whole thing, you know, or rearchitects the whole thing top to bottom like a couple different times now. But uh, there's some... There's it some gets really, better every time. Yeah, and there's some really cool design patterns in there also. Um, you know, it's uh, uh, the... Uh, you know, sort of the, the pluggable uh, app instance model that they have there is, is a really good reference implementation. Um... Let's see here. I think, yeah, circuits is the only thing that I've seen recently that sparked my interest. Um, I don't think I have any use case for it because, like, building things in a very synchronous manner is not a problem for me. Like, flat, using Flask is, is fine. Something interesting that I did recently is I, I was building a website and I wanted to use the Django admin to manage it. I saw this. I saw this on, and, uh, on, on Twitter, yeah. You and it was, used Flask I, to talk to the Django admin. Yeah, well, I just built, yeah, but basically what I did was I built a Flask app, or a Django app, but I just did the admin stuff, and then when I went to go write the routes and stuff to do the views, and I'm like, I, I hate this part of Django, why am I doing this? <laughs> and so I just replaced all that with the Flask app, and then I can import the, the Django models. I was Then I was just going to query the database with my records library directly, but then I realized I'd have to do some because I was doing a lot of foreign key stuff, I had to do some joins and stuff like that that I am not... I, I don't remember how to do that stuff off the top of my head. It's been a little while. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, I can just import the ORM. So so I just import the ORM <laughs> in, in Flask, and it works perfectly. All you have to do is make sure that you import the Flask application after you initiate the WSGI application for Django, and then everything works perfectly. So I'm, I'm running a Flask app, I run it by running manage.py run server, and uh, it's a regular Flask app, and it has you just import the models, and they just work, and I pass them into Ginger Views, and everything's working perfectly, and I'm just happy as a cow. So and I have the J, and I go to slash admin, and I get the beautiful Django admin with like <laughs> I got a custom theme on there, and everything's nice, and like it's so it's it's like heaven. It's well, it's heaven. Well, if you do package this up, I might humbly suggest you call it WTF SGI. <laughs> <laughs> I might do a blog post on how to do this because I think it's something that people should think about because they're both just libraries. Django mm-hmm. is a library and Flask is a library. There's no reason you can't use both. And, yeah, and- uh, Workzook has something in it called a dispatch middleware, which allows you to mount different WSGI applications at different routes. So mm-hmm. basically, I just took slash admin and I mounted the uh, Django application at, at slash admin. And then I had it so instead of the admin being in the Django app at slash admin, I had it be at the root. And then uh, I had to do something a little finicky to make static files work, you know, because it was in the sub. It was like, it, you know, it's like you take a, a web app and then you, like, do it the old school way of doing, like, vhosts and shit like that. Yep. Make it run in a directory. It's effectively that it's running in a directory. Yep. So 
I had to use white noise to tell it that um, that all the static URLs start forward slash, and then everything just magically works. That's kind of cool. And, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it took me like ten minutes, and I'm like, and everyone's like blown away by this idea, and I'm like, come on, guys, this is like. It took me ten minutes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know. So I might somebody... I, I might roll out a blog post about that idea because I just think it's such a powerful concept of like you know take the parts that you like from things that you like and build things with it. You know. A- anytime I, I have an idea that everybody's wowed by, I'm like, but this was so easy. I remember how long it took us to come up with the idea of putting wheels on a suitcase. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. It's a no-brainer nowadays, right? Yeah. <laughs> but for the longest time, you know. But. Yeah, I mean, for me, it, this doesn't really make sense unless you're using the admin. Because the admin is really nice in Django, and you can really customize it to do some powerful things, and it saves you a shit ton of work. Sure, but there, there's a there's a very clear tipping point, I think, with the admin. I mean, you know, you can, it, it's, uh, at, at the very simplest, it's, you know, just a web page interface to seeing a SQL table. Um, you know, with some very light customization. But then you can do some inline yeah, yeah. records and stuff like that. With some light customizations, you can do that. But, you know, at, uh, at, at a certain point, you know, I, I've seen uh, uh, some intrusions into the uh, uh, the Django admin that... Uh, <laughs> I uh, bet you have. You know, it's like, what? why, you know, at this point, just just re- just start over. Like, you know, it, yeah. it, it, the, the further you deviate from the uh, the base case with the Django admin, you know, the, the, the greater and greater the nightmare it starts to be. But, this I mean, is the first time I've really used it, uh, other than when I worked for like a company where we had a Django app and we were just using the default admin stuff. And this, I customized it. You know, I did inline tables. Yeah. Um, whatever those are called, inline. Inline tables. admins, yeah. Yeah, inline admins, and uh, so I could I have a page and it has products listed, and I can just list all the products right there and update them inline. Oh yeah, no, it, it's a it is a. And I'm like, if I wrote this myself, this would take me days. You know. Oh, of course. No, it's it's an absolutely fantastic, uh, uh, incredibly flexible and very resilient uh, uh, app. And you know, it's, it's and I really like the fact that like I could even re- load a custom theme for it called mm-hmm. uh, Django Suit, and uh, it looked really nice. And then like I would I I did the with the inline tables. I like did like ten different products on this page, and then like I missed a. Uh, required field on on one of the on like the top at the very top and I hit save and you know like if I built this thing myself I would have lost all that work but it didn't it saved everything it didn't lose any of my any of my work it it just like oh you missed a field and I'm like man this thing is so nice like I just I just really admire the craftsmanship that's gone into it when Uh, you use it the way it's intended yeah and and it's also I think even more impressive because you know if you uh, if you truly think about it as a, it is itself a Django app. Like it's, yeah. it's the, th- this one has been in existence since the start. Like, you know, you know <laughs> back, you know, you know, let's see. So Django's 1.0 is in 2008. So, I mean, for almost 10 years now, it's been a, you know, production grade app that's gone yeah. through, you know, and, and follow the evolution of the Django framework, you know, and, and uh, uh, even prior to, to 1.0, you know, uh, leading up to 1.0, they they completely ripped out uh, the uh, uh, the way that they did models, and they completely ripped out the way that they did forms, and uh, and still the the you know, the admin application has been able to 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 track that progress, um, you know, because you know the, you, you've you've built things that have you know lasted for years. I've built things that have lasted for years, but I've never built something that's been like widely used for ten years. 
You know? No, no. You know, it's like I, I was I was uh, sitting on a, a talk given by the uh, the CTO of uh, uh, Intuit. And he's like, you have to remember, TurboTax has been a living code base for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, ah, I can't even imagine what that looks like, you know? I mean, you know, most most things that folks write, you know, you get to like three or four years, you know, people look at it, they're like, oh, what was I thinking? Let me just throw it away and start over. But, uh, you know, the, these, yeah, these sorts of... I'm curious how old Request is. Let me take a look. I know, I think it's five years old. I'm pretty sure. But it might be six now. <laughs> So it, I think it'll get to that ten-year mark. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, li- lines of code-wise, like you know, uh, uh, compared to something like you know Django Admin, or definitely compared to something like TurboTax. <laughs> like, oh, I you can't know. imagine TurboTax's code. I had to write a financial aid calculator for a university once, and that was the the worst thing I'd ever done in my life. Yeah, make, make I sure. didn't get to use Python either. I had to do it in Cold Fusion. Oh, <laughs> make sure like truly pity accountants. You know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I can't imagine. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so here's something that someone did with me on a podcast recently. They asked me what my top five favorite books and movies and video games and like media were. Hmm. So I'm curious if you want to answer that question. Yeah, I can do that. Uh, so I, I've I've never well, I, you know, when I was in college, I had a wicked Starcraft addiction. Uh, oh, nice! And and uh, you know w- when it started, you know going over into a, um, a Counter Strike addiction, I was like, I I gotta I gotta stop this. So I kind of quit video games cold turkey then. And uh, the only the only thing I've ever uh, I, I've I've dipped my toe back in for would be uh, Fallout Three and Fallout Four, which were epic. Games. I just got a PS4 um, around Christmas time, and it came with Fallout Four, but I haven't played it yet. I it's just. It's such a great suit. It's so imaginative, and it's like, you know, I, I was on a. I just know I was on a boat, and like I tried it out for a few minutes, and I was just like, I was. It didn't appeal to me. So okay. I, I I started playing God of War instead, and, uh, and all the games that I already knew. Well, but the funniest thing was I, I started playing Fallout Three like right before I moved to the Washington D.C. area. And Fallout Three takes place in like the nuclear wasteland of of the capital. And so, oh. uh, and they got so many of the details, like, right, like, you know, the first time I walked into a metro station and it looked exactly like it was in Fallout, you know, I'm just like looking around for zombies, you know, uh, or, oh, you know what? I'm thinking of the wrong game. I, my PS4 came with Far Cry 4. Oh, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> which is supposed to be incredible. Okay. Not, okay. Yeah. Not Fallout. No. So Fallout, tell me about Fallout. Uh, so Fallout deals with like, um, it, it's a first person adventure game you know slash shooter with uh uh it takes place in the world post nuclear nuclear apocalypse gotcha. and you survived by uh, living in a fallout shelter and then you escape and uh, uh explore the ruins of a a major city um uh, uh you know and, and the people who survived uh, also so in fallout 3 was in uh the washington dc area fallout 4 is in boston um, and so, uh, uh, so, you know, you, you get to like, you know, walk around, you know, post-apocalyptic Fenway park, you know, <laughs> uh, you get to, you know, see the ruins of the national mall. Like it's, uh, you know, it's, it's very creative. It's very immersive. Um, but, uh, music, music is definitely my vibe. Um, uh, I, I would say, you know, I, I like a lot of, um, uh, uh, Americana and, uh, alt country kind of thing. So now, when I hear Americana, I just think of The Offspring. 
<laughs> uh, no, think of it like, um, uh, you know, uh, the legacy of Bob Dylan, really. So, gotcha. you know, it's, it's uh, you know, somewhere in the folk, uh, bluegrass, rock kind of genres. But uh, I, I first got turned on to that with a, a, it's a, a pair of guys who were recorded between like 1987 and 1993, I want to say. Um, I think they were from St. Louis, but they were, uh, they were big in the, the Minneapolis St. Paul scene. They were called Uncle Tupelo. Um, but, uh, it, it's, it's, it's the, 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 I'm from that area. Actually, I think I may have heard of them before. Well, so, so one of the guys uh, split off and went and started a project called Sunvolt, which is still active today. And the other one, uh, started a band that is pretty well known called Wilco. Um, but, uh, uh those two guys. And then there was another, uh, another band out of, uh, I want to say North Carolina, um, uh, called, uh, Whiskey Town. That was led by Ryan Adams, not Brian. Ryan Adams. He gets very, <laughs> he gets very angry if you make that distinction. And uh, 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 Caitlin Carey. If you don't make that distinction. Uh, yes, yes, yes. And uh, uh, so Ryan Adams has gone on to have a, a pretty brilliant solo career. Um, and uh, uh, one of their albums, you know, was uh, you, know, you know how like um, uh, uh, the you know sometimes there are those albums that they they get produced but never get released and so people kind of hear about yeah. them you know like uh, 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 the Beach Boys with you know Smile um, but uh, Whiskey Town had uh, had an album like that where uh, their record label got acquired uh, right around the time that they were going to release it but they had all agreed it was going to be their last album they weren't even really going to tour to support it. And so they shelved it, but didn't release it until years later when Ryan Adams, you know, went out with a solo career, um, and it was a phenomenal album. But uh, but then growing up in Texas, like I listened to a lot of uh, you know Lyle Lovett and uh, uh, you know Guy Clark and you know some of the old Texas country folks. But uh, uh, but yeah, I'm not familiar with any of these people. You kind of have to be from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, uh, yeah, so so yeah, I, I listen to a lot of live music, a lot of yeah, get music on pretty much, you know, every waking hour of the day in my house. Yeah, I'm the same way. I listen to mostly hip hop though. Like if I'm listening to new music, uh, for the most part. Uh, I, sh- I saw a great show last Friday. You would really liked um, at the Nine Thirty Club, uh, a band called Boombox. Boombox. Um, yeah, it's a it's a, a duo. I weirdly from uh alabama <laughs> which i would not have seen coming but uh they uh yeah they, they do kind of like an electro funk and it was a really good show and it's a really good band so you should check them out that sounds awesome yeah i uh so what about do you have any do you read much do you have any books I read a lot of uh a lot of nonfiction mostly but um yeah me too um yeah so i read uh, uh uh, a lot of uh, theology kind of stuff. Um, yep. Me too. <laughs> and uh, uh, then, uh, sad to say, some uh, politics and economics. Uh, uh, but, what kind of theology stuff are you into? Um, so I like tracing the... Um, so each of the major world religions has a, a mystical strain to it that yeah. um, all sort of flows back to sort of the same underlying theology. Um, so in, in uh, Judaism, they have uh, uh, Kabbalah. Um, in Islam, they have the Sufi. Um, the, the Catholics pretty much, uh, they extinguished uh, the, the Christian version of it. 
back in the uh, third or fourth century, the the Gnostics. Um, but uh, yeah, but that's still alive. The, the st- you know, so we have the Gospel of Saint Thomas, which is a Gnostic gospel. Um, and and so uh, you're probably familiar with Hermeticism, then, right? Yeah, and 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 the uh, you know sort of the the spiritual ideas that went into it. But then the predecessors of you know Eastern religions, you know, in the Vedic traditions, but um, so I, so I read a lot about those, and uh, um, I'm sort of I also identify as an anarcho-capitalist. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I so I read like Friedrich Hayek, and um, you know, there was a, a I just finished a, a good book written by um, uh, two editors of a, a political magazine called Reason Magazine, but it's a book called The Declaration of the Independence, oh. uh, uh, tracking the fact that. Uh, Americans identify with political parties less now than they ever have before in our country. Really? That, that is surprising to me. Uh, well, it, it really is. I mean, so that uh, like party affiliation is lower than it's ever been, but partisanship huh. is higher than it's ever been. Oh, I see. I and see. So, so they sort of uh, laid the case that uh, 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 the, the independently identified voters are, the, uh, are, are what's going to break the, the uh, political duopoly that exists in America. I uh, I've been trying to get through Hermetica if you're familiar with that, mm-hmm. but it is quite a heavy read. It is like kind of like the Bible for Hermeticism, effectively. Okay. It's like, uh, and it's uh, it's a very thick read. I've gotten through the first couple of chapters, and it's uh, there's just a lot of information in there. Well, uh, and it, it was that was the text that like uh, Isaac Newton heavily studied, for okay. example. We'll we'll have uh, to uh, trade books next time we hang out. Yeah, it, it's really it's really great because for me, I I see Hermeticism as like the base class for which all the other major religions are instances of effectively, or it, it can be viewed that way. If you know, I'm not saying that I'm not asserting <laughs> that they are base or they are instances of this base class, but I, I think that's the claim that Hermeticism makes is that it is that base class. I, I love how folks in our industry find ways to apply programming metaphors to any part of any conversation subject we use. It's the best analogy that I know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I like it. I like it. And I'll, I, I'd like to check that out. So next time I hang out, bring it. Definitely. Cool. Well, I think that was a pretty good show. Do you have any questions for me? Uh, how's Heroku? Uh, Heroku's going great. I'm uh, not planning on leaving anytime soon, so that's good. Okay. We yeah. just launched um, automatic scaling for performance in larger dynos. So if you have a performance dyno, you can configure it to scale between like you like by default it's like zero to ten or one to ten. Uh, but you can specify different numbers and it will uh, you know I don't know what it's based off of off the top of my head, but I assume it's based on CPU mm-hmm. usage and memory. Uh, and it will automatically uh, spin up new uh, dynos for you, which is pretty cool. Um, there were some third-party things that provided that before, but now it's something that we offer. Um, but it's not available on the lower-tier dynos. It's only on the real expensive ones. That so it's for people who are doing like really serious, sure. You know, who people who really need it. It's to cut costs effectively. It's it's for spinning down when you don't need it. Yeah, totally. No, I yeah. I, I have always uh, loved Roku, and you know, it's. It, I think Heroku successfully brought to uh, uh, to VMs what the the dream of containers, you know, still lies in the future. Um, yeah, and yeah, uh, we have beta container support. Uh, it's really nice. That's my only experience with Docker is actually using Heroku's version of it. Mm-hmm. 
and you know playing with it locally but um i've deployed a lot of containers i have a, a docker image built for miniconda and um which is great it allows you to install any scientific python package and deploy it to heroku very easily um which is fantastic because the default build pack doesn't support um mm-hmm. like live fortran and all this stuff that yep. like Sci- scipy requires yeah uh so uh until further improvements are made in that space uh the best approach is to just use docker um and uh it's pretty great so if you google heroku container registry you can find information on how to use that and uh, it accepts any docker image you want to throw at it so you can run anything on heroku now yeah i i mean like you i if i something i think would be interesting for y'all to put together is um uh actually uh, build packs as container image layers. So, I mean, uh, you know, that has definitely never been discussed at any point. Well, so, like, <laughs> so, so like if you look at uh, Red Hat's uh, OpenShift container hosting service, one of their container builder uh, uh, concepts they call it S two I source to image. Um, yeah. But effectively, it's just build packs. And so, uh, you know, you say, hey, this GitHub repository has my Node.js application. Turn it into a container for me, and it does. But then it's hosting it for you on the OpenShift platform, and you know, but uh, uh, you know, effectively, you guys could do the same thing with build packs, and you could do the, uh, you know, I used uh, uh, D dollars uh, multi build pack builds all the time because you know you need yeah yeah you need you need apps dependencies in order to you know oh god I remember trying to do I, I had to uh, do um, SAML two based authentication in a Heroku project once, and so. Getting uh, libxml sec one, uh, yeah, yep, uh, yep. uh, jammed in there using uh, using app file was was really interesting. But uh, we uh, we might have something up our sleeves uh, coming down the road yeah. that is not going to look like what you're talking about, but something even better. So because okay. I mean, like the, the well, we might not. Who knows? I can't I can't really speak to it. But it's uh, well because the the the, the sl- developer experience around installing packages and stuff like that is going to get a lot better. Cool. In in the foreseeable future. So because the uh, the the slug that you guys end up building at the end of the build pack process, uh, you know, all you really have to do is throw a uh, JSON file at the root of it, and you've got a container. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which uh, uh, you know, in, in terms of, I, I think you guys are still on AWS. Like uh, you know, it throws yes. it throws all kinds of interesting um, uh, uh, hosting spin up, spin down possibilities into into effect. But uh, yeah, there's oh, there's so many things that we could do. Yeah. It's, it's a matter of uh, you know what. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something, though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Evil laugh. Yeah, but there's there's many options for us. Um, but uh, I'm really excited about what we ha- do have coming down the pipeline because it's going to make uh, the experience around like the Leipzig two thing mm-hmm. um, a lot better, and it's gonna resemble more like a container file, but it's it'll be it'll be different. I that's all I can say. Cool. All right, man. Yeah. I'm, look yeah. For, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be exciting. Imagine having a, a uh, we'll see what the future holds. Sounds good, man. Well, yeah. uh, thanks for having me on here. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for joining, and uh, to all of our listeners, thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Adios.